All right, I, I don't know why I'm putting out my clock here, um, just habit, I guess, because today won't matter. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do, fire me? So, oh, too soon, too soon. Um, a couple things. One, let me just say, um, boy, what was I going to say today? Okay, uh, my, 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 um, one of my sons said, are you going to cry today, Dad? I was like, no, I'm not emotional right? So some of y'all, you can get emotional, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to. So here we go. Um, today, I, I had sort of planned this to be um, inspirational and fun. Could end up a train wreck. I have no idea. So you want to go on this journey with me? All right. Um, obviously, today marks sort of a pivot point, a transition. Today is a bridge from the past to the future for us. So what I want to do, I want to do a couple things today. I have a collection of thoughts. I have no idea how long this is going to take. So I will watch the clock, and, and we just might, you know, do the gong thing uh, at some point. I want to take a quick look at, um, a quick look, at my 20 years of ministry here, okay? And then I want to uh, look at a major leadership transition out of the Scriptures and, and see how that happened. Did you lose me? Am I there? Recording still good? All right. Um, and then lastly, I want to look forward to what's coming next for us as a church because uh, I, everything Mark said ditto at, at communion. This is representing newness, and there's opportunity in front of us, and I want to talk about that. And if today is your first time here, today is a perfect day to be here because you get to see who we are and where we've come from, and you also get a picture into where we're going as a church. So let me just say this up front. Um, I want to uh, quickly look at some of the weddings I've done, some of the people that have been born here, some of the baptisms that have happened, and uh, some of the funerals I've done. Uh, in the 20 years that I've been here, I came here in September of 1996. Some of you were not born, and uh, I'm okay with that. And so um, I will not have pictures of everybody. So please, please, please. I mean, if I did, there would be way, way too many. In fact, uh, weddings. I've done 34 weddings since I've been here. And uh, my very first wedding was, do we have that? Jason and Mandy McCleary. Get a load of that business, huh? How they let a kid perform a wedding, I have no idea. And uh, is that not a good wig or what? So, but I tell you what, I was scared to death that, that first wedding. And I think, Mandy, were you working at Bob Evans at the time? You were scared to death too. That's right. So that was my first wedding. Um, and then in 2001, I married these two, uh, Mark and Shannon Hackathorn. And that wedding was in Wittenberg's chapel. It was so hot that day. I think I soaked through the whole thing. But the funny story about that was Mark had a habit of playing basketball at work at lunch. And Shannon told him specifically, do not play basketball the week of our wedding. Mark did not listen. He broke his ankle, came down the aisle in a cast, but uh, for, you know, threw away the crutches. It was like uh, Benny Hinn. It was just awesome. So anyway, then in 2001, Ben and Karen got married here. And the thing about this wedding is this is the only wedding I've ever done with facial hair. You guys are so lucky. So... Yeah, I just, sorry about that. I don't know what happened there. Um, anyway, and then in 2004, uh, Courtney and Mike. And uh, aren't, aren't wedding pictures fun, fun to look at? So I was just getting to know them at the time, and we've known Courtney ever since. Then in 2007, we have Brian and Jen Haynes, and uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I think your dad had a part in that wedding, right? And so that was fun. I think it was really rainy that day, too, wasn't it? It was super rainy. Then, in 2011, some of you will remember this guy, Grayson Pack, he asked me to come down to Asheville, North Carolina. That's the only wedding I've ever done in a robe. How about that? So that was a tradition, I think, of her family, so I did that. Uh, this was an interesting one. 2011, I did Birdie and John, and that's the oldest couple I ever married. So they were 29. Um, <laughs> 2012, I don't have a picture, but Jim and Stella, this was fun. It was a, a vow renewal, and I think, if I remember correctly, Jim, you didn't know that was going to happen, right? That was like a surprise, so talk about a surprise. Oh, you get to stay married, ah. Um, 2013, Joey and Morgan, uh, that's the only outside wedding I think I've ever done, so, so that was fun. That was, oh, Jamie and Grayson's was that time, um, but that's the only one in Ohio. Um, 
Then in 2015, uh, I married Lisa and Mike, and uh, she's got a great uh, success story. It's been super to watch her grow as a person over the years. And then in just this year, uh, Stella's daughter, uh, this is the, I did this, this is the only Halloween wedding I've ever done with people in costume. So that's the only time that's ever happened. Um, and now, so it, it's a lot of fun uh, to do weddings as you see people begin portions of their lives. But go to the next screen, Eric. Um, I also did a number of funerals. I have done 37 funerals. I've done 34 weddings and 37 funerals. And uh, of course, life is, is marked by the lives that you share. And so in 1998, Lorraine McGuire, a uh, super lady, talked more than any other human on the planet that I can remember, if you know her, absolutely true. Then in 1999, um, I did Bob Petrie's uh, funeral. Bob mentored me. When I first got here. So, and then in 1999, I also did Laurel Macy's. Actually, I didn't do that. Russ, you did that wedding. It was over at Brush Creek. And uh, Laurel was actually a brother to my grandfather. And uh, so there's some family connection there. Um, and then in 2001, I did Homer Ingalls' uh, funeral. If you didn't know him, he'd never met a joke he wouldn't retell. He was, <laughs> he was just uh, so funny. Um, and uh, anyway, so in 2002, uh, Pat Current. And uh, some of you might not know her. I think, she, is there a plaque with her name on it on the information booth, I think? So she was a deaconess here for many, many years and uh, a, a neat lady. In 2002, I also that year did Carl Jenkins. That is Loretta's uh, husband. And I used to go sit with him, and he was an old iron worker and would tell me all sorts of stories about, uh, about that uh, career. Fascinating stuff. In 2004, um, I did Roger Hinkle. Uh, he married... Carla's mom, and uh, he was just a lot of fun, even when his health was failing, uh, got a kick out of him. In 2006, I did a funeral for, uh... anybody remember how old he was? Yeah, he died of leukemia, his family was here for um, just a brief period of time, a couple years, and they moved to Oklahoma, and uh, I was honored to fly to Oklahoma and be part of that. Um, then later that year, um, Don Ballantyne, I did his funeral. Boy, he was diehard doctrine guy. He, he would keep you straight. If you thought anything in the Bible might not be, he would, he would get you back on track. Uh, in 2006, I did Floyd Burner's uh, funeral, and he's connected to a whole bunch of people in this church. I was honored to be part of that. Um, and then 2007, uh, Ray Haney. Now, if you don't know him, he was uh, a World War II vet and would love to tell you stories if his wife would ever leave the room and stop interrupting. And what was one of the best stories I loved about his, um, he was watching uh, the History Channel one day, a documentary about World War II, and there were tanks going across a bridge, and there was uh, guys on the tank, and he's like, hey, that's me. So when you can watch yourself on the History Channel, you're old. So... <laughs> Anyway, that's a fun story there. Then in uh, 2007, Scott Black, that was, uh, oh. Don and Sylvia's son, and he was, how old was he when he died? Okay, so he's my age. I hope I get to the door. Um, I was called late at night by Don that they had found him out at the reservoir. He died while he was exercising. So I had the privilege of driving out in the middle of the night uh, with Don to confirm that it was Scott. And so that was a, that was a big moment. Um, let's see, then in 2007, uh, my grandfather died. And uh, I, I shared that funeral with um, my dad, and my, that was mom's dad. Uh, in 2009, uh, Dick Ober. Dick Ober, he was a good friend of mine. Uh, Bertie, how long were you guys married? 50 years. And Dick was an engineer to the tilt. Uh, he, he never knew, you know. So anyway, he was, he was very straight and true. He was a good golf partner. Um, he and I would, would go out and golf uh, back when I had time and money. But um, we would go out and golf, and we would both shoot about the same thing, and I would, same score, and I could hit the ball about twice as far as him. But mine would go in the woods. And his would just go down the middle. And so, I'd, you know, I'd be back and forth, back and forth, and we'd just meet on the green. And um, he was a lot of fun. Um, so anyway, and then 2010, um, 
Ron Brewer, uh, Ron had a, a good story come back, and so lots of uh, good success there. Uh, I also, boy, maybe I dropped this off on accident. Um, yeah, go back one. Uh, Marjorie was that same year. So Carla, your mom, I did her uh, funeral. I used to go visit her, and uh, that was about, uh, Isaac was two years old, and uh, she loved to see him run around, and I was just thankful he didn't break stuff. Um, then in 2011, I did Marvin Hart's funeral. Uh, that's Keitha and Yola's dad, and uh, family, of course, uh, through Laurel. And I, uh, Marvin was awesome, uh, because he let me know how I was doing uh, in my messages, if he was awake, I was not doing well. So I, I could always count on him, right? It, he was awesome. I really, I really loved that guy. Um, Bill McGuire was also in 2011. He was uh, married to Lorraine. Uh, he took great pride in his Irish heritage and uh, was real faithful bringing Tara to church uh, for many, many years. And then in, uh, also that year, uh, Ray Middlesworth. Uh, Ray died while sitting at his computer, and he loved to cook for us, and uh, he became a part of our church family for a long time. <clears throat> then in 2013, uh, David Blackburn. <clears throat> David, I never knew David prior to his stroke, but David would often sit right there where Angie is in his wheelchair, and uh, he would always laugh at my jokes during the, the message, and that was, that was fun. I'd love to, to go see him. And uh, then in 2015, we lost Charlie Scalf. Uh, Charlie uh, started coming to church, I think, through you guys out at the reservoir. And Charlie uh, was good friends with Ray and cooked, and that was certainly an unexpected death. And then that same year, uh, we lost Don Black. And uh, <laughs> Don, um, and, and I put that up there just because that sort of represents his personality. But go to the next screen, and, and here's a picture of Don. Don... Uh, was one of the founders of North Hills and uh, was a faithful, faithful teacher. And Don is the reason I came to North Hills. Uh, he's the one that called me and, and asked me um, about coming up here. And, of course, many of you were part of that. But Don was my contact person. I called him uh, after a couple years of him asking, and I said, hey, send me a contract. And he did, and I stayed with you guys uh, at different times as well as Russ and Lois. So, anyway, so nobody else is allowed to die in 2017. Got it? None of that. Now... On the flip side, <clears throat> we've had some births. Anyone venture to guess how many? 169. So I am not going to go through all those baby pictures. They all look the same. Now, but, I, and this is not a complete list by, by any stretch. So here is a list of families. Every single person in these families were born since I've been here. Not the parents, not the parents. Um, but uh, all three Allen boys, any, a burner of any stripe, you pick the clan. Um, Bordens, Davilas, all the Driscoll kids since I've been here, Hackathorns, the Haineses, McCleary's, uh, the Meffords, all of the Millers, all the Newtons and Harvolds, and the, all the Pences, and all of the, the Rays, and the uh, Mikhail Scalf, you remember Mikhail? Um, the Tullises, they've all been born since I've I can't believe. How old are you? Yeah. What's that? Oh, how old is Cody? September? September 1st, 96. Yeah, okay. All right, and then uh, the, all the Vies, all the Williams, all the Woos, and all uh, Zimmers. So, anyway, oh, and let me just say, my family was born here, and not just my boys. I was married while I got here, so uh, my entire family w went from nothing to something and big something um, since I've been here. So you guys are, in fact, family. So lots of births, lots of weddings, lots of funerals, lots of people that I have had the honor of being part of their lives over the last 20 years. Now, as a church, we've done some things, uh, some construction projects in 2004, uh, you remember this? We had a building blitz, and uh, we put up the shelter house. Dr. Joe Martin came up from Atlanta. He's a uh, background in um, construction, and we built that right out there. Then three years later, we uh, renovated our sanctuary. This is what our sanctuary looked like if you have never been here. There were pews uh, on that wonderful brown tile, and uh, some of you may still have a pew in your house as a result of that. And so this is partway through. This is once we uh, put up the 
um, hid the paneling, basically. And then one more. Do you guys remember my office? It was about like the size of a closet. And uh, so that's when we were recarpeting. All of this carpet runs all the way out there. And then, so that was in 2007. And then in 2010, I can't believe it's six years ago, we uh, knocked off the front of the church, dug out a big hole, and then this was built on top of it. And uh, that's looking up from the, the top of the church. We framed all that out. And uh, then, so anyway, it is what that is today. And then in 2014, just two years ago, we uh, ripped out the old kitchen and uh, put in the beautiful uh, stuff we have down there now. Now, so that's just sort of the, some of the construction stuff. So you can see how the church has changed in the last 20 years. But we've also started doing some events that have been fun. Um, since I've been here, we started doing an Easter egg hunt, and you'll notice there's snow on the ground. We, we, we don't care how cold it is. We're going to go find candy, right? And, uh, but not only that, it's also grown to be quite a, a large event, and it's really continuing to uh, meet a need. And so you guys, you know, build connections in that way and keep that, that truck rolling. Then we've also, uh, we, we for a number of years took student mission trips. And uh, we've been out to New Mexico, and we've been to Colorado, and am I missing one? Colorado twice, maybe. Or maybe just two. Anyway, so, and that's Pat Current, by the way, over there on the right. And Wyoming. We went to Wyoming. So, and those are some fun pictures, but we don't have four hours. Um, then, some of you may remember we've done a Christmas play or two. And uh, so, Julie has been a driving force in, in many of those things. And you, uh, if you saw any of those, you witnessed things in this church you never, ever thought you'd see. Um, <laughs> Then, also, we have uh, established a trunk or treat event that uh, a lot of community people come in and, and visit, and that's always good. Now, but that's, that's not the first uh, time we ever celebrated uh, Halloween. This is pre-trunk or treat. Anybody know the cow? Larry Dickerson. <laughs> so, those were some good days, and that's Jason Powell there on the right, if you remember him. And I think that's, is that Angie back at the door, Lois? I think that's your daughter. So anyway, and then just this year, uh, for the first time, uh, we had our first ever car show, Smashing Success. So, um, you know, what I guess in all of that, I just want to communicate to you that there is a lot happening through this group of people that hasn't have anything to do with me. All of those events are you guys, and those things can all continue, and that has a valuable ministry, and so I'm excited about uh, what's going to continue uh, to go on. But perhaps of all the things that we've done, all the weddings and and all the construction and all of the um, you know, events, perhaps the most important thing from a spiritual vantage point that we've done are baptisms. And I've had the honor of... That's a boatload of people. So, good job, y'all. Um, you guys are furthering the gospel by sharing faith with people that are important to you. Because I, I didn't generate 117 baptisms. I just got to do the finish work. Most of those faith stories, and we don't have time to watch all the videos, but are people coming to faith through connection and relationships with this body of people, with their parents primarily, sharing faith, you know, grandparents teaching grandchildren, parents teaching children, nephews, nieces, uh, junior church, Sunday school, youth groups, all of that. And so that is um, the fruit of your labor. Now, this transition that we're going through isn't the first leadership transition. In Scripture, there was a significant transition that happened when Moses transferred leadership to Joshua. And it was not an easy uh, transition for them emotionally. Moses had led the people, not 20 years like I had, but for 40 years and the 40 years had been their one primary leader, and they had some great victories. They had a complete turnover in their population. There was a new generation of people coming up. They had good momentum. There was identity. They felt good about who they were and the direction they were going. And suddenly, they lost their leader, not because of some tragic accident, but because God decided it was time. They felt they needed him 
to take them to the next stage, whatever that was, and it caught them off guard. The people had not expected it, and it was not their choice. Can you relate? And uncertainty ruled the day. They did not know what their future held. They were not sure who would take them into that future or who would take the reins. They were left with a leadership void that had to be filled, but they didn't know how and how in the world do you replace Moses. But God had a plan. He had it all worked out, and he explains it to them as the need arose. Numbers 27, I want to look at a couple of verses today. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up on this mountain in the Abram range and see the land I have given the Israelites. So Moses gets to go up on the mountain and see the promised land. This is the victory. This is what they've been working for. This is what the promise was. This is where God had been leading them. And then God explains to him, Moses, you're done. You're not going to take them to that next stage. There is something coming that I have promised them and have been preparing for them, but you are not the leader to take them there. And then he explains to him that he's going to die. I hope that doesn't happen. In verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord appoint someone over this community. And so from the outset, Moses the leader understood the need to have God's involvement in the selection process of who the next leader was going to be. They needed God's direction in the leadership selection process. And he says, one who will lead them so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. What's interesting is in the scriptures, the reason it's important that God is part of the selection process is because the Bible is also very clear that what makes sense to God often doesn't make sense to us. That God sees things we don't see. God knows things we don't know. God understands things we don't understand. And the flip side is the, also true. Things that we're absolutely sure make sense in a right move, it's very easy to be the wrong move. Things that make sense to us may not be what God has in store. Things that seem like the right move may not be what God has planned for us. So just understand that just because we think something is the right thing to do doesn't mean God thinks it's the right thing to do. Prayer is going to be pivotal in our selection. And apparently they needed a leader, not a dictator, or they were going to continue to wander because any organization that doesn't have someone leading them tends to tread water. Now, verse 18, so the Lord says to Moses, they're having this conversation, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Apparently, God felt that the number one thing to look for is a spirit of leadership, not a skill set, not necessarily competency. You can learn skills to lead, but you know people that have a spirit of leadership even when they're young. And you know people that are even uh, advanced and accomplished but not having a spirit of leadership. Without the leadership gene, no direction will be taken. And he says, lay your hand on him. In other words, asking God to find the right person is the first step, but step two involves a good transition from the previous leader to the next leader. Note how God explains it ought to be handled in verse 20 and on. Give him some of your authority. There is a symbolic transfer of leadership from the previous leader to the next leader. It is important for Joshua to feel the leadership blessing of Moses. Give your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. It is important for the people to see the previous leader commission and bless the next leader. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. So everybody was involved in this uh, symbolic transfer. And then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. And there's some discussion whether that laying on of hands is from the priest or Moses or they were both there, but the instructions came through Moses. And everybody witnessed this symbolic leadership transfer to Joshua. So I would ask you to consider this that perhaps you in your search for the next person find someone with a spirit of leadership, not just a nice guy, hopefully they're nice, but someone with a sense of direction, no matter how old or young, they can grow into that. But I would also ask that you consider perhaps allowing me whatever time that is to come back and lay hands on, just as we did today, 
to transfer leadership. Now, if it's long enough time, don't worry about it. Just get on with business and have your elders do it. But there is an important thing to happen for you when there is a transfer of leadership. Why follow this pattern of Scripture literally? One, it will empower your new pastor. Um, I've been surprised as we have been talking through the pastoral search committee with some of the people that we're you know, building relationships with that I understood the need to talk to you guys about the next person isn't going to be me, so let them stand on their own. I had not recognized the concern that some of them, them that they would have that they're not me. Apparently, I'm intimidating. So people will say, no, you guys need to understand, I'm not Seth. <laughs> Good for you, right? So just understand that if we do a transfer of power in a biblical model, it will empower your new pastor, but also it will reassure you to see me or your elders, whoever does that, support them. It is important that that happens. But how do we get there? How, how do you choose a new leader? Well, a couple quick leadership lessons. Now, th- this is just something to understand. This is pull back the curtain, look uh, kind of behind what's happening. Um, every leader has about four groups of people in a church to lead, okay? You have me. Let me talk to me. When I came to North Hills, I was 25 years old. And the day I walked in the door, there were people here who were older than me, and they were here before me. In fact, the first day I was here, everybody in the room was here before me. Not all older than me, but all before me. When a new pastor shows up, those of you who are older than that person and have been here before, which would be all of you, that's the hardest group of people to lead. Because there's a sense of we were here before you, we'll be here after you. In fact, Bertie, that's what you said to me early on. You're like, I was here before you, I'll be here after you. You were right. So that's the, and now let me just also recognize the younger the person, the bigger this group is going to be, right? But because I'm stubborn and I stayed here 20 years and I got older, that group got smaller, right? I'm going to beat you. So now, no, no, no. But it's also that group of people can be the staunchest supporters and make or break a new pastor. If that's a group you fall into whenever you hire someone, you need to understand your role and that you are the person and part of the group that can undermine them or help them be successful. That's on you. Now, these other two groups, you have people who are younger than you that were here before me, right? So when I showed up, it would be like a Karen Vi. How old were you, Karen, when I got here? 19. Okay. Um, And then there are people who are older than me that came after me. Right, and I won't call you guys out, but if you're older than me and you got here after I was already here, that's you. Those people are kind of, you know, you can lead them well. But then you have this group down here, younger than me and came after me. If you're younger than me and I was here when you got here, that's the easiest group to lead for a pastor because that's all they've known, right? So you just need to understand those dynamics. Um, so anyway, okay. Now, going forward... In your search for a new leader, I encourage you, I implore you, take your time. Don't rush. Be prayerful. Um, Bill Hybels talks about adding people to staffs of churches, and he talks about the three C's. I didn't write this down. It could be too many notes, but just chemistry, competency, and character. Character comes with a person. They have it or they don't. So you need to check into someone's character. Competency, if they're low on competency, you can teach that. So if you have a young person who has character, but they're not that competent, they can grow into that. But then also, don't ignore chemistry. Chemistry is important. How you feel about someone, how you work with them. Fortunately, when I showed up here, you know, I I built competency, but there was good chemistry. And over time, you know, you're my people. That's why this works. Now, let me read a couple things to you. Um, This comes from uh, a book uh, called Transitions, and here's a transition checklist, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, I'm just going to work through these fairly quickly, but here, as you go on and go through this transition uh, that Mark talked about during communion that you all know is here and that we've been working through, um, number one, take your time, and here's what he says, the outer forms of our lives can change in an instant. 
but the inner reorientation that brings us back into a vital relationship to people and activity takes time, right? It's one thing to load boxes in a truck and move. The outside of your world can happen in a day, but it will take time to reorient to things internally. Number two, arrange temporary structures. He says, you will need to work out ways of going on for a while the, oh, going on while the inner work is being done. It may involve temporary arrangements or acceptance of a given situation as temporary. So you will go on following this week without a permanent pastor. That's temporary. Number three, don't act for the sake of action. Stay in the transition long enough to complete the process. Oftentimes when someone loses a spouse, they say don't do anything major for a year. Allow the time to do the inner work. Realize that it includes the ending of a chapter and the learning about the next step. Number four, recognize why you're uncomfortable. Distress is not a sign that something has gone wrong. He says, but that something is changing. Understanding the transition process, including anxiety and the emerging of old fears, is important. You know, it's interesting, at any funeral home, you can get a list of the uh, primary stressors people go through life, obviously the loss of a loved one, but also the birth of a child, a wedding, right? It doesn't have to be a negative change to cause stress and anxiety. Just change will do that. Um, Number five, take care of yourself in little ways. Be sensitive to your smallest needs. Find little continuities that are important when everything else seems to be changing. So if that means making sure that cookie table is there every week, get the cookie table. Number six, explore the other side of change. Um, He says some changes are chosen and some are not. If you have not chosen the change, look for possible benefits. On the other hand, if you have chosen, be aware of the possible costs and the pains that may arise. Number seven, get someone to talk to. Whether you choose a professional counselor or just a good friend, and y'all are good friends, you will need someone to talk to when you're going through an important transition. You'll need a good listener to help you put into words your dilemmas and your feelings so you can understand what's going on. Number eight, find out what is waiting in the wings of your life. Whether you choose to change or not, there are unlived potentialities within you. Transitions clear the ground for new growth. I could not stamp that with more emphasis than if I tried. Because some of you will sit stagnant as long as I stay here. You don't have to move. You don't have to grow. Going forward, you do. But that also means great and wonderful things can come out of you. Number nine, use this transition as the impetus to a new kind of learning. You knew much of what you needed to know. Um, let's see. You knew much of what you needed to know for what you were, but what you are going to become will require new understandings and new skills that you may not yet possess. And number 10, recognize that transition has a characteristic shape. And here's what he says about that. Uh, a guy named Arnold Toynbee wrote about a book called The Study of History. And he says that societies gain access to new energies and new directions only after a time of troubles initiate a process of disintegration wherein the old order comes apart. So in other words, it, 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 similar to lifting weights, you have to tear down the old muscle before new muscle builds. Sometimes your life has to fall apart before you can gain new territory. New orientation is made clear only after what he calls a withdrawal and return on the part of individuals and creative minorities within the society. The crucial change, it seems, takes place in some in-between state or outside the margin of ordinary life. That is so with individuals as well. So as the church that you have known changes falls apart, whatever verbiage you want, there is a disintegration that takes place so that there is room for something new to be built, and potentially better, and potentially greater. Go back to the story of Moses and Joshua. 
It was under the leadership of Joshua that they took possession of the promised land, a place Moses couldn't take them. They achieved more greatness as a people, more success as a people, more uh, faith as a people under Joshua's leadership than they ever did under Moses. Moses did foundational work for them, but Joshua saw them grow into the world-dominant power that took place under the reign of King David, Solomon, and Saul. Now, here's where I want to wrap up today. I have a couple New Year's wishes for you guys. Number one New Year's wish for you. I wish... I've done really good to this point, have I not? Okay, no promises on this. We may just rush through this. Uh, and, and, and Because this one is where I am right now. I wish that you would know the thrill... of obeying God in a specific area that scares you to death. And uh, that steps up or, or sets you up to potentially lose something important to you. Ah, that's where I am. Jason, you're in the same place, right? New career. You're done after 19 and a half years. Me and you, buddy, Right? There, there, uh, at some point in your Christian walk, in your Christian life, God will bring you to a dilemma and nudge you and compel you to do something in an act of obedience that when you do, feels like free fall, a, a letting go of, <laughs> it's jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, right? And, and until that parachute grabs you, there is a moment of free fall, and, and the, the act of stepping into that in your life, whatever it is for you, if God doesn't catch you, things could go badly, right? I look at my life, and I think, what? I, I found this quote. I, that I, I, that I want to say it this way. I wish for you an audacious culture-defying, seemingly irresponsible act of obedience. In other words, an audacious act of obedience that people around you are like, you're doing what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. And culture-defying. The people say, well, Seth, you're going from two incomes to one income. What are you doing? What is it for you? Because there's something you might have felt God nudging you, and you've been successfully ignoring him for years. It might be time. And then seemingly irresponsible act of obedience that to those on the outside who don't know the details can look at you and say, boy, that just doesn't make any sense. You fill in the blanks. And as crazy as it sounds, what I do know and what many of you have known at different points in your lives as well is that when you obey God in this way, you know Him in a way you have not previously so you can sit through all the sermons you want, you can take all the notes you want, you can learn about him all you want, but until you jump out of the airplane, you won't know him in quite the same way. Now, here's a list of possible things, because I'm like, I don't want to do this by myself, here's for you too. Leave a job because of a compromise or a temptation that you're forced to face in that job. Number two, give sacrificially to what God has called you to in a way that financially causes you to free fall. Find a place to go on a mission trip. Scares some of you. It's easy to give $100 and clap for people to come back and show the pictures, but why don't you go? Teach or volunteer somewhere. Choose to mentor a kid in the inner city. Go home from work. Be a mom. Some of you, that's exactly what you need at a certain stage of life. Downsize. Get your act together financially. Get out of debt. Go into ministry. Yeah. Start a company. Take your company public. I don't know what God wants for you. But whatever it is, every time you think about it, if it scares you and you talk yourself out of it, that may be exactly where he's taking you. So if I sat across the table from you and we had a conversation, I would just say, just, just do it. Live your life without regret. Life is too short. It will disappear. You'll look up and your 20s are gone. You look up, your 30s are gone. 
you look up, your 40s are gone. And everyone who looks back says, boy, I wish I would have risked more and done more, obeyed more. I don't want you to live with that regret. So if you're here today and you're dealing with one of those, just obey God. Just do it. Number two, I just have five wishes. (laughs) I wish you would personally know the thrill of bringing someone across the line of faith to become a Christian. Every person in the world who says, I'm a Christian, got there because of somebody else in their life. And there is something about bringing a person to that point of faith, and it's not like convincing them or ramrodding them into it, but engaging with them at a level where they are able to see their heavenly Father in a way they had not seen before, that's the essence of life. Everybody faces judgment someday. What are we doing about it? Do we care? Jesus says, look, I'm going to show you what God is like, and I'm going to leave you with the hope that I'm coming back, but until then, here's your mission. Go teach people. Show them what I'm about. Teach them what I taught you. Every one of you is here today because of someone else. And I wish for you that someday you could sit with tears in your eyes as you watch a person baptized, that you had a part in their life and moving towards that decision. Not because of the story that you were watching on the screen, but because your life crossed theirs in such a way that it made an impact and that you were involved somehow in them crossing the line of faith. It will change your life. It will be a memory that lasts forever, and you will carry with it, carry it with you. And it will always be emotional for you. Because you can spend your life as a Christian, take all the notes, attend church, and never impact anyone spiritually. Now, number three. I'll get, skip some stuff. I wish that you would reorder your finances so that you would give first give, then save, then live. I wish everybody would learn to prioritize financially around what God says is true. That the reason I, I wish this is not so you can give more to this church. I mean, for crying out loud, it's not even certainly not for me to get paid, right? Because we're just at a different point. I want this because spiritually it will move you to a new place. Why? Because money is a key to your heart. I didn't say that. That's not a preacher thing. That's a Jesus thing. You don't like it, you argue with him. Because you can never be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and have your finances out of whack. It's impossible. Why? Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If your treasure's out of whack, it's likely your heart is out of whack as well. And if all of your life is caught up in owing and paying, owing and paying, you can't focus your heart on the things that God wants you to focus them on. How many of you have wanted to be generous, but you couldn't be? Because you don't have margin. I don't care how much you make. It's about living on less so that you can give. It doesn't have to be to church. It can be helping people. So I wish for you, whatever drastic measures it takes to get to the point where you can give first, then save, and just learn to live on the rest, I wish you would do that. And nobody's immune to this. I mean, even if you've been a Christian a long, long time, we just drift towards the consumption of everything we earn. It's what our culture does to us. It's what our heart does to us. We have to actively plan and work against that. And if you never came again, I would still beg you to learn to finance your, to order your finances in a way that you give, save, and live on the rest. Instead of just living on what you can, saving a little bit, and if there's anything left over, drop it in the plate. And I know I, this is so complicated. We don't have time today. We've done entire sermon series on this. You can get them on the website. I'm just lucky that I was raised with it. I admit that. This is not that simple. Well, it is. It's simple. It's just not easy. But I long for you that life. All right. It's a big deal because it's a spiritual issue. It's not a money issue. Number number seven. No, I don't care what number it is. Here's another wish. I wish that every student would make the decision to completely ignore everything the culture tells them about sex. I just throw it out the door. Uh, every message culture sends us, and it it just breaks my heart uh, because what they're told every day, the story they're sold every day, every summer I spend a week at Fuel telling kids, it doesn't work like that. It's a lie, right? Culture is filled with 
unsatisfying sexual lives, marketing the same values to other people so they can live unsatisfied sexual lives, so you can grow up and have an unsatisfying sexual life. Awesome. People have sexual encounters with no intimacy all over the place. We have raised a generation of men who are forever discontent with their sexual lives due to pornography, due to the, what culture has told them about intimacy. And we have a generation of women who will never feel that they measure up for the rest of their lives. And I just wish that the teens in our church would grow up saying, we don't buy it. It's not true. It doesn't work. Uh, Stacy and I are ancient in terms of our belief that, you know, God really does know more about sex than GQ, MTV, or if that's still around, right? Be- we actually believe God, that, that the one who designed it knows most about it, and, and, and I was just dumb enough in high school and college to have ignored the culture and trusted God, and Stacy and I have benefited so much from that. I wish that were true for every one of our students. How many of you as parents, don't raise your hand, have made mistakes that you wish you could go back and correct? You're like, well, my kids will do the same. They don't have to do it that way. All right. I could go on for that for a long time. All right. And then I I just, you guys, and, and here's the thing. To all of you parents, they need your support. They need you to engage with them. Not criticize them. Talk about it. Talk about it. How many people, (laughs) a whole generation grew up with, whoa, you don't talk about that. That's awesome. Where'd it get us? I don't slam on people, but you don't have to be gross to talk about the very thing that God created for us. We just have to be spiritually minded when we talk about it. All right, let me get off my soapbox. All right, here, here's another, um, another wish. And maybe, maybe you're lucky. This is the last one. I wish, in 2017, I wish I could communicate to every person who calls North Hills home how important their partnership is. You will learn that in new ways this year. Your engagement in what we do as a church is critical. It is not a matter of showing up, consuming, and going home. Your participation is what will make the difference. Not everybody will have to stand up and do things, but everybody will do something. Because when you're not here, when you're not engaged, other people hurt. Other people do without. That's why for a long time we've talked about invest and invite. And there are certain things that a church can do that you can't do, right? Like presentation of the gospel. They're like, I don't know. I can't really talk about Jesus. I just live Jesus. Well, that's fine. But you know what you can do that we can't do? Is have your friends. But at the right time and in the right way and in an appropriate fashion, if you invite your friends, whom I will never have the same relationship with, to show up here so that me or whoever's here can explain the gospel in a way that you may not ever explain it, there's a partnership. And what you do in your life, impacts what happens here through the lives of other people. Boy, if I just could communicate that, communicate that, have you get it. That it isn't about hiring the right guy to do the church. It's about hiring somebody who can come along and encourage you to do what God has called you to do. That's where it lands, baby. That's what makes this church awesome. That's why I'm confident. I have seen so much. This is interesting. And Russ, I put it away. I didn't read through it. I've been cleaning the office, and I'm finding all these old minutes. And uh, there was a motion from Russ in 1978, 73, somewhere in there, where he just goes on and on about the quality of leadership in this church. That was 30, almost 40 years ago. He was right. And there's people here who match that. There's a generation of people here who are tired, 
But there's a whole generation of people here who are just coming on the scene. And you might feel like a rookie, but you just got a signing bonus. And there's a lot at stake, and a lot can happen. And I'm encouraged about North Hills. But you guys got to stay in the game. And if you're thinking, well, after Seth leaves, I leave, you hurt other people. You hurt yourself. Because this isn't really about me. And we looked at everything that I've been around for, but I just happen to be around for it. You guys are the ones that did it. And you're doing it now. You guys do more now than you realize. Super cool to pastor this church. I don't do anything. You've been telling me that for years. Right? But that's because you guys understand what it means to follow Jesus. And you'll continue to do that. And I will continue to hear good things about what the Lord is doing in Springfield, Ohio. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we as a body uh, just are walking into 2017 uh, a little bit free folly, um, unsure of what's to come. But Lord, help us be confident in you that we don't have to have all the answers. Help us to trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding because our own understanding is so limited. Help us to trust you in new ways. And I pray, Lord, for whoever you bring to this body to lead them, that they would recognize it, even if it's not who they initially would have chosen. I pray that they would seek you, that you would continue to work through their lives as they continue to work in the lives of people around them, representing you as the church of North Hills, pastor or no pastor, that they would continue to serve people, love people, and share the message of hope that comes only through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we just continue to lead people into a growing relationship with Him so that we can partner in the work of the gospel, that we can partner together, that we can truly be a body that cares about one another, cares about people outside of this group, and that we would be your ambassadors in a world that desperately needs you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.